Today's episode of Winging It on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Just like basketball, the game of life is unpredictable. Nothing says unpredictable quite like this year's Christmas Day games. For starters, the 76ers knocked off the top-ranked Bucks, But more impressively, the Golden State Warriors, without all of their stars, beat the Houston Rockets. And to close out the night, the of course Zion Williamson-less Pelicans took home the win against the Denver Nuggets in Denver. Get a teammate who can help you navigate the unexpected. Talk to a State Farm agent today. Hello and welcome into Winging It, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your host, Annie Finberg. And to my right is Mr. Vince Carter. DC in the house. And we are so excited that we have Grammy Award winning Wyclef with us in the house. What's up? I thought you was going to do the Killing Me Softly so I could finish the scheme. Go ahead. I got a little nervous. Go ahead, go, Should we just try it again? go strumming my pain. Go oh, ahead. I can't do that. I was going to say, and killing us softly. And I was going to say, Wyclef. one time, <laughs> two time. <laughs> So he had your back. I had your back. I appreciate I was that. Ready. You know, I <laughs> I was in the paint, ready. <laughs> I had you. Like, yo. <laughs> I've been doing this for like three years now, but if you ask Vince for some reason, the intro always throws me. Something about the intro. Every time. Well, you got no, that it. That was actually good. Thank you. Every, every I wouldn't now say it's every it. time. I'd say it's 75% of the time. You got I'm, it. I, I even bought it. So I came in here with two bags. I mean, I'll be like, yo, Clef got two bags. So I always, since a kid, I walk around with my recording studio with me. So, you know, you never know. Like, I might be producing you before this whole thing's over. So That's what's up. I might be like, Shakira, Shakira, (laughs) early. (laughs) It might be Vince, because, you know, Vince. Vince Oh, we got bars, bars over hoops, like hoops over bars. Let's work. I'm ready. <laughs> we got all the topics. Oh, love it. We're going to start with you before we move to hoops. So I want to know a little bit about your upbringing. You came out here when you were nine years old to the yeah. states. Yes, you didn't ma'am. even know English. No, I didn't. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of how you got acclimated. So I was born in Haiti, small village. It's um so Basquiat, the artist. So similar to like Basquiat, who's uh, half. Puerto Rican and half Haitian. So the, the Haitian side of Basquiat, me and him from the same place, it's Quadebuque. Small, um, it's like a dirt village, but in Quadebuque being like, it's a rural area, but the kids are born with gifts, right? So it's like these rare gifts. So you can be walking down the street and a kid is following you and he literally can paint you. Um, and then you have the other kids who literally walk around with drums and can make songs on the spot. That was me. So, and literally this was a way of living. My daddy left me when I was one years old. He was a Nazarene minister and he, my grandfather was a voodoo priest. So um, my, my, uh, my daddy was passing in front of a church one day at 18 years old in Haiti. And he said the church like called them in. So he was like, he became like a real young minister. And then he went to my dad, uh, grandfather, like, yo, you know, I'm no longer going to do this. You know, I don't want to be part of like what you do. I'm going to be a minister. So he becomes a minister and he goes to America for the faith. You know what I mean? And he leaves me. I'm like, I think like one. And my mom's pregnant with my other brother. And so at the time, the immigration laws in America was a little different. So I think Ford, President Ford. So if you had um, children in the United States, right, automatically 
um, you can become a citizen and also then apply to bring um, certain family members if you have kids outside of the country. That's the case now. Right. right. Yeah. So, to, yo, yo Vincent, I say yeah. that because I always like have to state like what the laws were like back then. Um, right. You don't break the law, you're good. So, my daddy came and I tell people the village was nuts, right? So, the first time I've ever seen a white person in my life, because I've never, sort of like I said, we were like the Indians. So, we say like, le blanc, that means the white man. That's just how we talk. One day, a Jeep pulls up. I ain't never seen no Jeep. Because keep in mind, we live in like, when I tell you dirt poor, like we ate red dirt from the floor at times. But my brother who was with me, like he a lawyer today, he makes like, he'll take the worst situation and make a, he'd be like, yes, but it was mineral dirt. But <laughs> I know, yo, dad, it was dirt, man. Dirt is dirt. So point blank. Right. But the idea of just to show you how crazy this village was, I was saying this earlier to, to one of my boys. I remember we used to see airplanes. They used to fly like from the sky, like real high. And so to us, it looked like giant birds. So I would be like, pussy show. And then so you would see like a bunch of like Haitian kids running butt naked, like Shaka Zulu. Do, 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 do. And then we all would assume the position and we get slingshots. <laughs> and the thing is, like, if we can hit this bird down, you feel me? I mean, today it'd be called terrorism, right? right. But back then it was literally like, <laughs> if we can hit like this bird down, we would eat in the village for like, just to give you a sense of reality of what it was. So, so dude goes to the back of the trunk. He gets the rice, brings him out. White man, never met a white man before in my life. And I look at my grandma and I'm like, yo, Kiesa, translation, who is this? And I'm speaking Creole for the listeners. And then my grandma go, say, Jesus Christ, we. And translation is Jesus Christ. So now, <laughs> so now Jesus Christ done brought me some rice in the hood. And I won't even say the hood, the hut. So now, years later, my, my parents comes to get us from Haiti. And my aunt has to break the news. She's like, well, your parents came to get you. And I'm like, oh, I thought you was my mama. The reality of it was just to show you like within these rural areas, like when you grow up, your parents leave you for a better life and you don't really know who they are. And so they come to get us and we get to the airport like in Haiti and we get on this plane first time like ever. So now we're on this giant bird and it dog looks like a UFO. I'm sitting down. Now I see more white people with uniforms this time. So now we tripping. My little brother look at me. He says, yo, who's these people, man, with the uniforms? I said, stupid. These are Jesus Christ's cousins, man. Like, so, <laughs> so just to give you like, and I always say this just to show people like where we from. So when we got to the projects in Marlboro, Coney Island, Brooklyn, we made it. You feel me? Like, so when we saw like what was the housing projects like pulling up um, to us, where we come from, it looked like like we was like going into a skyscraper. Um, the idea of like eight of us inside of like a little tiny small apartment, you know, government cheese to us. At the end of the day, once we got here and the idea of like we can have a, a library card and we can get like a bus pass or something, you can get the train. So the reality for us was just insane, you know, um, couldn't speak English. So like every kid, you can't speak English, you're going to organize a gang. You know what I mean? Because you're very young. And 
Marlboro Projects was the the roughest projects at the time. And so automatically you go on the defensive because you you try to be like people with people who speak like you, the language. So automatically this is how sets are, are created. So in my country, we call them tribes. So we never consider, we feel like a gang is just a, a word that they use. So So inside of this was where it really started for me and discovering like hip hop, it was a mechanism so that I wouldn't have to like use my firearms, you know? Like when I say my mama took a gun in my hand and replaced it with a guitar, it, it was real. And I saw two two guys literally like on top of each other and they was going at each other like, yo, F your mama, yo, yeah. Well, F your papa, you know what I mean? Yo, suck ma. And I'm like, yo. And I told my man like, yo, what are they doing? Then the whole crowd is around. I'm here, ooh, ooh. And I'm like, yo, but they're not, hitting each other. So I was like, yo, if I can figure out how to do this, then I ain't going to have to knuckle up as much. I don't got to use my knife. I could just figure this out. So this is how I learned the English language. Because that was my next question. I was like, how did you, how were you able to adapt until you actually felt comfortable using the English language? Rap was, was like, it was one of those things. And then my father was a minister. Rap was considered drug dealer music, you feel me? So we literally had to sneak with the Sony headphones on. You know, you got the Walkman, Crack Phoenix selling the Walkman. You know, you often, you get this typical hood story. And now you got your little cassette. And literally, I learned through rap music. So then I want to be a battle rapper and I don't have my own raps yet. You feel what I'm saying? So I was studying like the raps of everything that I was hearing. You know what I mean? So... I hope like LL is listening to this, so it's because it's the coolest thing. And um, so you in the hood, and and I was like obsessed. Like LL was like one of my favorite because somehow like he had this thing with him where he could like be suave with the ladies and then turn around and tell you he's gonna kill you. So I liked that. I thought it was the coolest thing. So I would study my little rhymes and get them together. But keep in mind, I'm not writing it. I'm learning. I'm learning. Mm-hmm. You know, I be. LL Cool J is hard as hell. But do anybody, I don't care if you tell, I excel, you know? So they're <laughs> like, yo, dog, man, you biting, man. Like, <laughs> like yo, what am I biting? So it's like you 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 learn these things. And so to me, so hip hop and the, and the nature of rap, it, it really helped me um, get into the English language a lot. So you really learned it by listening. Yeah, I listened and uh being like my daddy was a minister, we I was like around Christmas time, my we had a TV with an antenna and I, I called my dad the original like Al Bundy. Cause you know, he said like on a TV Haitian Al Bundy style. And only two things you can watch. Like if you our age, you can watch the Muppet Show, Sesame Street, PBS, and then Caribbean people are obsessed with cowboy movies. Like anything cowboy and jeopardy, don't test me. So it's like, yo, it's like, you feel me? And so these two things was, um, we used to watch them. And I remember one Christmas, my daddy bought us all the Muppet instruments. So this was like my entry to like music outside of the village in Haiti. We had the the Muppet, guitar, the drums. The drum set. Guitar, and then, and yeah. then it was the uh, keyboard, right? That's right. Yeah, you yeah. know? And then, sure, I, guess. Okay. <laughs> so Vince, I was obsessed with Kermit. You know, this is how Kermit used to talk, Vince. And I always wanted to talk like Kermit. So I would like imitate Kermit, Kermit like Miss Piggy. And we bring this, we banging this thing in the hood. But my dad's dream was like, if I can get them to like music, then 
they're going to become the church band. So that's why I always <laughs> said, gotcha. it's like, so that be the connection. Um, he saw we had love for music. So I always say like when you young or, you know, and I'll do the same thing with my daughter or my little nieces and, and, and this Lord, literally like you watch them and you'll literally see like somebody constantly just want to find a ball, no matter what. They're like, I need a ball. I need to hit a ball. You see another kid like, yo, I need a stick. I need to bang it, you know? And I was that kid like, I just loved instruments and going around. So by the time I was 14 years old, I was the head choir director of my daddy church. 15 years old, became a jazz major, played like 15 instruments and like just self-taught like in a hood. So when my cousins was playing the Nintendo and the trap, you know, and I was like just literally like learning all these instruments because it was like an escape for me. By the time I was like barely 18, I think I was 17. And remember I told you my obsession for hip hop, my favorite rapper was Rakim. Cause I used to love the way he put these words together. And I felt like I could learn more English through this, this guy. So now 17 years old, I'm a jazz major and I play upright bass. And so my man come and he said, yo, guess what? Rakim is shooting a video in Long Island. I'm like, what? I'm so <laughs> so I take my upright bass in the train in New Jersey and I take my upright um, bass. I, I wear my finest church suit that I, my zoot suit with my cap. You see, I always got a chap on. And my man took his drum set, three piece drum set. We on the train. We like, yo, we going to Rakim video. Now keep in mind this time, Rakim don't know who we are. We ain't famous. Nobody know who we are. But we like, yo, if we get there, we going to be in the video. So we get there and I say, yo, let me do the talking. So get there and, I, and the, the big, you know, it's like a Hollywood movie, you know, big bounces at the door, like shades and like, what y'all here for? I said, what do you mean what we here for? Don't you see my upright bass? Where the band? All right, go by the pool area. Wow. So we go by the pool <laughs> and we set up. This is so when y'all watch this video. So why Clef Jean? When y'all watch this video, it's called Don't Sweat the Technique. Oh, yeah. That's me on upright bass with the chap. Yeah, that's me, like, barely 18 years old. That's how far I go back, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I always tell, um, every time at music videos, I used to tell the extras these, this story. And I'd be like, yo, it don't matter what you do. You got to go hard. I said, because... I was an extra in the Eric B and Rakim video. And I said, I came off with 14 shots. I said, I should be getting an award for extra of the year when I did that. <laughs> so I started teaching them. I was like, yo, this is how you sneak in the shots. You know, I started giving them all this like, you know what I mean? So that's how far back um, it went for me. Like when it comes to the idea of like music. So for me, it was like a comfort. It was a safe haven and it was a, a place of belonging for me. So that's how I got into it. So now when you're shooting videos, you had extras like, you like, uh, I get it. I yeah, get yeah, it. I'm yeah. watching them. But yeah, I'm like, I know how to sneak the shots. I mean, I was sneaking shots like, I was like doing like what Diddy, you know you know how Diddy just would appear in a shot? Like <laughs> right. you cannot outshine Diddy. Like he'd be like, you know what I mean? That's how I, I was like sneaking these shots in. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got, definitely got to go back how, and watch that. So no one noticed that you weren't, like that you weren't supposed to be there? Well, the thing is, the great thing, Eric B., great question. So the thing is, at the time, the stars are late. They're like three or four hours late. Rakim, Eric B., listening to this, I want to thank them for being late. So being that They're they were late not. for four <laughs> hours, right, 
we the band. Now, if you hear this song, it has like the sax thing in it I already knew. So I'm like barely 18 years old. And the director says, bring all the girls out. Now it's going down. I'm from Newark, right? You feel me? I just end up getting snuck in to this video. Now I'm by a private pool. And here comes 50 women with bikinis on. This is like a movie. I'm like, this business, I want to be part of this business. And so the girls come out and they're shooting us with the girls as what would be called pickup shots later. So when the guys came in, they literally did like seven or eight takes and they were finished. So then um, there's a video, there's a artist by the name of Young Thug. So Thugger has a song called Wyclef Jean. And if you ever watch the beginning of that video, he's like, yo, but there was a scheme he did like, yo, Clef ain't show up for the video or I didn't show up. So the video is literally like just putting the back takes of, of videos together. So with the Eric B and Rakim, it was sort of like similar to that. They was just taking the outtakes and putting them together. Food, the food Wait, before you ask that question, okay. your boy who was the drummer? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. happened to him? Yo, so his name is Johnny Wise. So once we started touring with the Fugees, I just brought him in. He became my drummer. But he, that he wasn't in that video. He's in he, the video. He's, in the he's video drumming well. in the video. Yeah, he. So that's my man. He's drumming. Like literally, you know, we ain't gonna leave each other behind. We get right, there, right, right, and right. we literally look like a scheme. And being like, I was this like young little producer who constantly listened to music. I was like, as long as we have the upright and the bass, well, so we gonna gamble. Like, if a band was already there, we'd have been screwed. Right, right, but right, I was right. like, we're going to take the chance. Yeah. And there was no band there, so it worked out. And everything yeah. was done by ear. Huh? Yeah. Um. So for me, I, I was naturally trained by ear. So like in the church, like you grow up and you got to like find it. You know, be the like, amazing grace. And you're like looking on it with keys. And by the time I was 16 years old, I'm in Velsberg High School, Newark. And I become one of the most lethalist battle rappers. So this is before URL or anything. It's like before the YouTube era. So my name, my first name is Nell. My middle name is Wyclef. So I call myself Nelly Nell, right? So I'm like hoodied up in my bubble goose. And I'm in an auditorium and I'm by myself. And I'm playing like these chords on piano. And a music teacher comes in. Her name is Valerie Price. She's like, where did you learn these chords that you playing? And I was like, I just could hear them in my head. And she was like, these chords are not ordinary chords that you playing. I'm going to ask you again, where did you learn these chords? I said, well, my daddy's church. I just play along. And she was like, close your eyes. And I love this school because it's in the hood. We're in the middle of the hood. And the teacher was like, close your eyes. And I closed my eyes like, yeah, yeah. She was like, what do you see when you play these chords? And I said, I just see numbers. She was like, what are the numbers? And I was like, well, my right hand, I could see one, three, five. Left hand, I could see one, five. So keep in mind, this is all like what they teach you in school, which is music theory. I didn't even know what it was called. I just could see it in my brain. And then she was like, tomorrow you're starting jazz. And I was like, no, I'm not. Jazz is for old people. You must not have heard who I am. I'm Nelly Nell. I'm going to be the biggest battle rapper in the world. She was like, <laughs> so slow down. <laughs> and of course, she twists my ear and put me in jazz. So um, I think to your point, I started off with ear, which means I could hear anything. And I would say when that teacher taught me how to read sheet music, it completely changed my life. And I would say 
my relevancy today, like whether if it's a a young thug generation or a Shakira or Khalid sampling a, a Wild Thoughts, which is originally my record, or I don't think I would have that range of composition if I didn't understand like what that teacher was saying. Because once she put me on it, then I started listening to Quincy Jones. I started listening to Gershwin. So I was more like that kid when people was listening to the hit records, I would go study who was doing those records. Right. And I think like that's how that teacher made Which me Which gave me more range. Well, yeah, because it, it became a different kind of right. range. Right, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like yeah. outside of what the typical person could yeah. do or stuck in a, what they call a box. That's right. You're outside the box because yeah. your range is just yes. next level. Which you know very well, Mr. Superhero. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners of our show know this, but I don't know if you know that Vince also has played, played a few instruments played, like, in his day. seven instruments myself. What I think is that space in the brain, I don't know what it is, but I think like we all share this space. Like it's it's a common thing where things are just natural um, by nature. And I think that whether if you do art, like I was with my boys who are like astronauts, like um, out in Miami, you know, they're into like the space program. And I think it's, just normal. So whether like if you're an astronaut, whether if you Vince, whether you like to me, it's only natural. Like the instruments would be natural because there's this this natural gift that he has on the other side. So there's people. It's called like this this genius thing, like where they like Einstein. Like uh, yes, the law of relativity, but then he plays the violin, um, and then the violin somehow balances him out. I think for me, I can't talk to a therapist. But I could sit there on piano and literally escape mm-hmm. by figuring out chords and then closing my eyes. And so for me, um, that's sort of like one of the coolest things with music. He also, I feel like I always say, is very good at many things. And I think you're right. It's like a certain, I don't know if it's an artist or I don't know what it is, but like I'm sure you have excelled at many things in your day too, as he has like can and play golf and play basketball and play basketball for 22 years. Yeah, it's called um, like a genius, but like rare, rare breeds. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? We've seen them in females. We've seen them in males. It's just, you know, and then not saying like, because everyone is special. So like I always say everybody is special. Everyone that's listening, everybody has a craft. But then you got some people that are just born and are just fearless at anything. When you see people like Vince, it just should remind you, like, because Einstein always say, it's which part of your brain do you really want to use and how much, how much do you want to try? And I think it boils down to what you have passion for. Mm-hmm. Like, if you truly have passion and you love it, it's going to work out. Do you think you said there's people who are fearless? So do you think the fear part is what holds back maybe some other people who might have that gift, but don't, but are afraid of perhaps, you know? mean people or not doing well, not, not succeeding? So one, at one time in my younger days, when I was a young man, you know, I, I was managing a rapper by the name of Cannabis. And Cannabis was like the most lethalist battle rapper in the world. And literally, he's the first rapper that I saw build a website. He was like a, a thug nerd. And Cannabis was the first person I saw sit down writing his lyrics on a laptop. I've never seen this before. And I'm telling you, like, back in the days. So one day I'm with Cannabis, and we're in front of, like, Western Union. He about to send some money to Jamaica. He's Jamaican. And he said, yo, Bridget. And he only talking an accent with me. 
But you know, because you know when he started, because this dude was literally like a, like you see how Biggie is Jamaican, but he just sounds English. I mean, this guy just speaks the Queen English, like so. We say, yo, Bridget, me think, you know, me want to be more harder, you know. When me get on stage, we want people to feel me energy, man. Me, me, me need them to feel me more. I said, all right, if you really want to be hardcore, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna bring a lion on stage, and I said because it don't get. You can't be more hardcore than that. But I said, we're not going to put the lion in a cage. I said, because the thing about the animals is I said, the lion will be able to look at you in the eyes and he'll be able to sense the fear factor. And if you can look at this lion in the eyes and he sees you because he can see right through you and he sees no fear, I said, you're going to conquer this stage. And that's the same thing with the fear factor. So fear comes like a lion and he could see or, she, you know, whatever it is, it sees right through you. So you got people that be like, oh, I ain't scared. And, you, oh, and then you run. So so we, uh, you could see it on stage. Cannabis overcame his fear with the lion a few times. And then so by the time he got to the stage, I mean, Buster Rhyme didn't. Because, you know, Buster, when I showed him the line, Buster Rhyme was like, man, you fucking crazy, man. You're out your <laughs> fucking mind, man. Whenever y'all get busted, he'll tell y'all. But it's I always use that analogy because at the end of the day, that's how strong fear is. So it's not the idea of you saying, I'm not scared. It's the idea of you truly believing it and, and, and overcoming it. I also feel with that being said, sometimes there's people who need that other person to help unlock, unlock that, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, fearless mentality. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I've, you know, sometimes you can just go to people like, man, you could do it. Just go for it. Like yeah. sometimes they can't see the, their potential. Yeah. But, you know, once they kind of hit their niche, yeah. they take off with, yeah. without fear. Mm -hmm. They just need some, sometimes you just need a little push, you know? So I feel That's like right. with that being said, that, that can happen sometimes. Bars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, Something that I enjoy about having you on the show, we were obviously doing our research and the Fugees came up in the 1990s. Vince Carter came up in the 1990s. Of course. First of all, talk to us about the Fugees, but then I also want to know if you remember seeing him coming up into the NBA. Yeah, and we all had the jerseys. So you have a Vince Carter game. jersey. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you? Come on, that's like, you ain't going to be from the 90s. Right. Like, it's like, okay, well, you're not going to be... This is like the original culture. You feel me? It's sort of like, okay, okay, let me explain to you about Vince. I mean, I can because I ran for president of Haiti. So <laughs> I'm going to take you back. Like I'm very, you have people that set a certain standard. What Vince has done for the culture and for the sport, the amount of respect that he has garnered, the, the amount of records that he has broke, has helped generations to come garner a level of wealth that they would have never garnered because it just, so for us watching that in a culture, you don't know how big you can go until you see somebody going. There's no way you didn't know. There's a few people that you had to know. Vince, Mike Tyson, like there was just in the era, there's AI, just a few AI, just MJ, a few people. Like, yeah, there's a few. Yeah, and, and like, <laughs> In, 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 in that culture, because us as hip hoppers, right? As rappers, our, the, our lyrics is based on information. So at the end of the day, and the information is based on the culture. 
And I'm a real dude. Like, I'm not impressed by people. You think I'm like the guy when people be like, yo, how do you feel about a black president? I said, I'm from Haiti. I ain't grow up but number. I love Obama, but I seen black presidents my whole life. When people be like, how you feel about black power? I say, you kidding me? If I was to tell you how I felt about black power, then I would be playing myself out if I have to explain to you who we are. So I was like one of those cats. So when I tell you about Vince, it's from a level of like high respect where you have kids in third world countries, more on a level of an inspirational thing. You know what I mean? And he probably be tripping out like, yo, Clef, is Clef a stalk or something? This guy know more about me than me. Like, No, but it's like, you know, yeah. you, you you study the culture, you right. admire it. And I'm sure it's similar with you too, especially back in Haiti. I'm sure people back there, do they get really excited when you go back? Yeah, I mean, my, my country, like I'm the son of the city, you know what I mean? Like whatever Bob Marley was to Jamaica, that's like me in Haiti. Like, Because I could have came to America and was like, forget Haiti. Like you get a level of comfort and you're like, okay, I'm good. Um, but if you go back, you'll look at the Grammys, first Grammy Awards, I'm wearing a Haitian flag on my back. The reason I did that, I felt like the Haitians were not getting a good rap. And the Haitians, to me, were fly people. And I felt like the only way that this, this would happen was to have young Haitians coming up, see themselves differently. So you need role models. So at the end of the day, you know, people got Michael Jackson, you got different. So when I came along, like now a kid that's like six or seven, you can't tell him he ain't going to be at the Grammys if his name is Kodak Black. You know what I mean? Like, yo, I'm going to the Grammys, you know, Clef's at the, it's almost like it just made it good just to see all like the, the new younger generation of Zoes, you know what I mean? Because, and then the level of respect and the fact that, that they have for me is like, they know my real story. It's like everything that I do is I need you to look at not just Haiti, just the idea of the rural communities, like different. And like, we are people, we are humans. And um, and that's what I always push for. Let me ask you about that. Did you feel like there was a pressure to have to do so? Or was, was that like organic? Like, it was just like, I'm here and I'm I'm putting this on. Or did you feel pressure to have to put them on? Well, I mean, the, the, the era that we was coming up in, you know, you had like, you know, Haitian Jack, mm-hmm. who's, who's, my cousin, you have, really? um, yeah. yeah, you have Jack Agner, who's born in Haiti in a place called Akaya. So him and, and my daddy's cousins, right? So then you have, at the time, so in America, we had like, you know, Jimmy Henchman, you know, Jimmy moved with my cousin, David Jean, you know, at the time, this is like, you know, you also have Shaquem, who's Haitian, and I could go on and on. Coming up, it was like, what are you going to do, right? Like the feds, at one time, they called me like HS Haitian Sinatra. It's like I'm 50, so I could tell y'all who I'm related to now. Cause it, But coming up, it was like, I didn't want that to be a stigma about how someone was going to look at me or how I was going to move because we all saw the game different. Everybody at one time was like, how do we make people look at Haiti different? And my thing was just, if I can create a movement musically and show kids like a different way, because what we came up with, man, dying was just a norm. Um, bodies on the roof was a norm. And then the Haitian youth started becoming more vicious and they started to get more upset and more angry and more was getting deported. And I felt like, 
like within a natural nature that I had to do. Because when the course of history, like we all are chosen, we all put in positions. So I was like, there's no way I could come from this village and be in this position. And in this time, I have to show the alternative, right? Um, and so that's why I did it. You know what I mean? We all we all did our part. And I felt like my part was um, to have Haitian kids look at themselves like, yo, we can do better and we can be better. Like, Everybody don't have to be a tough guy, you know what I mean? Like, and it helps to see it, to believe it too. Like, like they see it, they see you on the stage, like the big stage, and yeah. now they can believe it, like you said earlier. One hundred percent facts. Yeah. We'll go a little bit more into music before we hit hoops, but you have done so many collaborations with some of the biggest artists in every genre. Was there one artist or one collaboration that really stands out to you as one of your favorites? I always say like probably one of my favorites would probably be when I wrote uh, My Love's Your Love for Whitney Houston. I got a chance to be in the studio with Whitney, her daughter, Bobby, all three. And Whitney's, like when Clive Davis will tell you the story, he'll tell you because Whitney was coming from like all these movie studio albums. And it was like, yo, we got to get her back in to do like a studio album. Like we need an album. And so when Clive approached me, I was like, I got a song. She from Jersey. I got her. When I wrote this song, My Love's Your Love, I think the connection for that song was she from the church, I'm from the church. And then I was in the hood listening to I Believe the Children of the Future, just her interpretation. Of and then I used to watch her sing in the church just naturally. So I wrote this song. I was like, we're going to write it from a level of purity and I'm going to send it to her. So the record starts like, you know, if tomorrow is judgment day and you're standing in the front line and, you know, and the Lord asked me what I did with my life, you know, it was sort of like... I wrote it like a letter. Like it was her writing a letter, like the most purest form letter. And she heard it and she loved it. So now I got to get her in the studio. And I was like, okay, you guys, you know, make sure you just want to be Whitney. So I ain't never tell people this, but I rarely tell this story. When you listen in My Love's Your Love, what makes it so special, this record, when you go back and listen, Whitney's daughter was sitting there. She's a baby. And her mom is looking at her in Google eyes. And then her mom goes in the booth and her mom starts to sing. And then she goes, sing, mommy. I stopped the session and I take a microphone, just like here. And I said, so I put the, the mic on her mouth. And I was like, what did you just say? And she was like, sing, mommy. So then I recorded it on the tape. I held it. Then I continued the session. Right? And I keep going. And then Whitney came out, and then I told Bobby, I was like, yo, I need some male voices, man. Go in there. Um, I want. I need some some backgrounds. And and, uh, and, and P Bobby Brown can sing, like sing, like soul sing. So Bobby goes in there, and he lays these backgrounds for me. My love is your love, and your love is my love. And then, so I tucked it, like, underneath like Whitney's voice, you know what I'm saying? Bobby Brown listening, he noticed, <laughs> I tug it. And when I tuck this, <clears throat> then so when, when people's listening to this record, clap your hands, yo, it's all right. If tomorrow's judgment day, sing, mommy. You know, this whole thing was just done with the entire family. And, and then so I always like to tell that side of the story of Whitney because at the end of the day, I got to see the family in like a rear form. Like I've never... I was like, the press don't talk about this. Like, so it's like I had angel eyes that night. I was like, yo, I always have to testify what I saw that night. 
I want to ask you a question I mean, about when you're writing and the difference between writing for yourself and putting yourself in a situation where you're writing for Whitney, let's say, or, or let's say if you're just writing in general and then all of a sudden you say, I have a vision, this song is for whoever. You know, how do you ever write a song that's not, you said like you write facts, but not like not for you. Like you'll write a song like based off of your facts and you say your information, mm-hmm. but now you're writing a song like for Whitney. How do you put yourself in that mode? I, I think, great question. I think that the way that I put myself in that mode, that music teacher in high school taught me, she was like, look, um, there's two forms of writing. You know, you can write for yourself and you're going to express it. But whenever you're writing for someone, you have to approach it from a level of now you're a composer. Mm-hmm. And within a composer, think of it as you're doing a play. And within the play, you have, which will be your number one actor or actress, which is a cast. Now, the number one thing to that is the idea of making the audience believe the story. So every time I approach it, the first time, the first thing I always tell every artist, like, just tell me what is it that you really want? Because you got an artist that'd be like, nah, I just want to do a record with you. And I just want it to be pure. I don't really care if it gets on the radio. That's not my concern. You know what I mean? Then you got artists like Shakira, you know what I'm saying? Like I'd be in the studio, she'd be like, why Cliff, the record is not a hit if my hips don't move. You know what I mean? And you're like, go, go to Daka, go to you know what I'm So I think it, it, it but, but once again, it's about believing, like the cast have to believe. And then certain records when you write, like when I wrote Someone Please Call 911. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I was like, okay, there's only one person that I know that could bring this pain on this record. So being a, f- a fan of Mary J, I was like, this is the, there's no one else in the world that can make somebody believe someone, please call 911. Like she's going to make you believe that. So I think when I'm writing for people, it's almost like you have to go in the space of the composer, like, you know. So you're it's Jan, basically three different modes. That's right. You're Jan Zimmer. It's almost like now you're writing for, if I'm writing a song for you, it's almost like I have to go in your head now right, right. and become you, right. um, which is the mind of the composer. Mm. Yeah. Welcome to the lead. So we have a segment on our show called Welcome to the League, um, which we normally do with athletes obviously but i'm sure you had a welcome to the industry moment when you realized like wow i really made it um whether it was good or bad you know if you had an embarrassing moment if you had an awesome moment we'd like to hear both so before i say this i want everybody to know i love animals (laughs) (laughs) no i do TJ, I love animals. <laughs> like, I'm not like no, I don't want people like after this podcast come looking for me like, yo. <laughs> so most embarrassing moment for me would be one day I was in the hood. I was a little buzzy. I fell asleep in the booger basement and I woke up, TV was on and I saw Spud McKenzie. Spud had like, is a dog, like had one patch. You remember Spud McKenzie? Yo, Spud was like the original gangster. Like, he wore one patch. He had a black patch. He's like, he was the culture. Like, you had to, especially if you're into sports, like, Spud was, like, right there. Like, (laughs) I was on the hustle. I was like, yo, if America can make a dog famous, 
with one eye, I damn sure gonna be famous because this dog they using as a mascot. So I said, nobody know who the Fuji's is, but tonight, two two nights later, they're gonna know. We get signed. We're gonna do a big show in New York with Jodeci. And keep in mind, nobody knows who we are, right? So I said, all right. I said, I got to get a mascot because if I could get a mascot, then they're going to remember like we on the stage, you know what I'm saying? And keep in mind, Naughty by Nature, they had their mascot, you know, Tretch had a baseball bat and I was like, yo, I need a mascot. So I go to the, to the livestock place. So I told dude, I was like, yo, do you got a cow here? And dude like, yeah, I got a cow. And I was like, show me the cow. And he shows me a big cow. And I'm like, do you got anything smaller, like a smaller cow, bro? Because in my brain, somehow, I envisioned in this village, I was with a small cow. I never remember the cow. The baby cow. So dude was like, yo, I said, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have a little cow. I said, do you have anything that could be like cool? He said, okay, you come with me. He brings me to the back. He opens his door. The minute I see, I'm like, what the fuck is this? And he says, this is a rare Mexican goat. <laughs> so it's a white goat, got red eyes and black horns come up. And I was like, I need him. <laughs> right? So I go to the car to go get my money. And then I'm hearing something go like, this dude about to cut the goat. I run back. I'm like, yo, don't cut this goat. I need the goat as is, bro. <laughs> I need him so alive. I need the goat alive. So, you know, I put the goat in the car. We head back to the hood. Where was the goat? In the trunk or in the backseat? Like I said, I love animals, but the goat was in the trunk. So now while I'm riding the goat back, it it dawns on me that goats really smell bad. So as I'm going, like, I'm like, yo, I don't know if this is a good idea because this goat is funking up the car. So I get to the hood and we in the back. Now, everyone that knows about the Booger Basement, Akon, everyone that been to the basement knows we keep pit bulls in the back and we have a hoop in the back. It's like the broken hoop where we play ball with one little chain on it. Like, so you pull up in the back and I tell my dudes, I like, yo. Y'all ain't going to believe, bro, what I got in this trunk. <laughs> like, yo, Clef, you always up to some crazy shit. Just pop the trunk, bro. They popped the What the fuck, man? I said, easy. It's a rare Mexican goat, right? So I take the goat, and now the goat is smelling bad. I got to give the goat a bath before we go to the concert. <laughs> so I bring the goat, and now I got the goat, and we go in the basement. And I start to watch the goat, but my aunt is coming from upstairs and I can't let her know there's a goat downstairs. You feel me? So she's coming and she's cursing in Creole, like, what the F is this smell? And she's heading downstairs. So the goat still got soap on everything on him. So we take the goat and we rush him and we go hide the goat in the garage. You feel me? And she comes, she's like, what's this smell? I said, yo, it must be a skunk, something. This thing smells. We go in the garage. I finish wash the goat, then I blow dry the goat, make sure the goat's super <laughs> right. So now 
I have to get this goat a ride. So my man who used to tag cars up in the hood, you know what I mean? God bless the dead. He, I bring him to the back and I say, yo, we got a show tonight with Jodeci, bro. I'm going to need you to drive me. He like, yo, that's what I'm talking about. It's an <laughs> honor. You know what I mean? Like, now you talking. This is this moment I was waiting for, right? And I was like, yo, but you just come to the garage real quick with me, right? <laughs> he come to the garage and he's like, the fuck is this? And then I say, easy. It's a rare Mexican goat, right? <laughs> so he goes, look, ain't going to happen, Clef. I am not putting no fucking goat in this Land Cruiser. It ain't going to happen. Fresh Land Cruiser. Land Cruiser. Yeah. He said, yo, it's not going to happen. And I said, bro, okay. I said, but you remember this day. Remember this day. Because when I'm getting a Grammy, when I'm up there in the award and I'm getting this Grammy, keep in mind, your name <laughs> would have been the first name I would have said. But because of this day, because history will count. All right, man. Fuck it, man. Let's get the goat. Now I put the goat in the car. Lauren's in the car. Prize in the car. We get to the concert, and I'll never forget, Jodeci pulls up, white limousine, you feel me? And it all getting out of this limo. And I think it was Devante. He gets out. He got a pit bull. And I look at Lauren, and I'm like, you see? <laughs> Y'all was like complaining about us. And look, this dude, and it was like, yo, Clef. There's a big difference between a pit and a goat. I said, no, they're animals. Like, at the end of the day, there's no difference. That's his mascot. There's my mascot. <laughs> Bottom line, I get the goat in the club. Lord, um, big Cap, he's a guy from back in the days, way before you was born. But he talked like this. This next group coming up, they got flavor. Y'all give it up for the fudgies. Right? And I was like, <laughs> nah. this nigga call me the fudgies, bro. And so keep in mind, it's promotion. It's cool. But after the night is over, you're going to know who we are. The goat is wearing a T-shirt that says Boof Baf with shades. Because Boof Baf is the single. You feel me? So I got to be promoting like Spud McKenzie. Then it dawned on me. So Lauren goes up first to set it off. And Lauren Hill sets off this voice. First time the world is hearing his voice, acapella. The place goes silent and bananas. And then she goes, prize where you at? Prize where you at? And prize come up there. Oh, he's getting them. He's going. Then he like, yo, Clef, where you at? Clef, where you at? Right? And I used to have like a little scheme back in the days, right? I had like a fireman jacket, ball head. And shades and dudes be like, yo, why you wear the fireman jacket? I said, because I'm on fire. You feel me? <laughs> so I'm on fire and my goat is with me. So now when they go, Clef, where you at? Clef, where you at? I try to pull the goat with me. Stage fright. <laughs> this goat look at me and he freeze up. <laughs> and then you know what? I realized something. This is actually the first time in the goat's life that he actually been in a club. Right? He's no never way. been in a club before. So, now, so I'm like, yo, I'm not going to let this goat embarrass me. I pick up the goat and I put him on the stage. And the goat runs the opposite direction. And keep in mind, it's a Jodeci concert. It's a Chris, like a Chris Brown. You could imagine the amount of beautiful people in the front. The women start yelling. <laughs> running to the back. You feel what I'm saying to you? And now... The goat got so scared that he left a, a, a trail of shit, like a straight trail of shit. And so now motherfuckers is stomping in the Timberland boots 
like with shit. You feel what I'm saying to you? And you're like, and we're doing a single boof pop. I know, I saw, I go down, you know. And it's the worst thing, like when you're a teenager and you see a pretty girl in the back, like, mm, like you know what I'm saying? To you? Right, right, right. You're like, you're like, <laughs> so we do this show and we get off, and then Big Cap comes back on and he's like, this some disrespectful shit, right? He's like, go back to Jersey, wherever you're from, the fudgies. And I would say literally that's probably was one of the most embarrassing moments. And at the end of the day, what appeared to be a tragic story and most embarrassing in a couple of days, we really got our props for this goat. So I would say um, long live the goat. I just want to know one part to that story. One part. What did Proz and, and Lauren say after the show? Oh, no, no. I, no one was talking to me. I was completely... <laughs> just curious. Yeah, I was, man. It was, it was terrible. But so it the, worked. Yeah, it worked. And, and, and we got... We got um, but that probably was literally... It, it was embarrassing. Because, you know, you're a teenager... I'm thinking like I'm Haitian Fonzie. I had baby face, baby. I was like, baby face, you know? <laughs> hey, you walking in, you know, and the girls are like, this is not working. And I said, the show must go on. Yeah, it went on. It Shout went out on. to Spud McKenzie. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have going on right now? Is there anything that the people should know about that you're working on or that you're doing? Three things. One is uh, the Netflix movie. So there's an animation movie of my life. It will be about the first nine years in the village of Haiti. How did I escape poverty through imagination? I'm very excited about this because it's going to live in that space of like Aladdin or Rio, the animation, but now it's called Prince of Port-au-Prince. The second thing is if anybody's seen Anthony Bourdain, what I loved about his show, the cooking show, was he went to all parts of the world. So I do the same thing with music naturally. Like I would be in a country, I'd be in Brazil, wherever, and uh, and all of a sudden, you see some locals show up at the door. Madeline's like, what do y'all want? Like, Why Cliff tell us to bring our drum, to bring our trumpet, we're going to perform tonight. So what we're doing is, so the Wyclef Jean Carnival TV show is basically we're going around the world, as I naturally do. And I'm going to be bringing you talent and curation that you can't find on no Spotify, you can't find on iTunes. I search for raw talent. As a producer, I'm always looking for what's the next sound. And then the third thing is, as y'all can see, I'm very charismatic. Vince, now you know I'm a real funny guy. You know what I mean? I already knew that. I got perfect timing like Dave Chappelle. So the the third thing that I'm very excited about is our first Wyclef Jean Carnival. It's going to be a restaurant, but at the same time, it's a place of music. Um, And we're going to be doing the Wyclef Jean play there. So the idea is if anybody's seen Black Orpheus, it's going to be the idea of when you come to my place, the food that you smell is all four generations of Haitians cooking it, of my family. If you see someone on the piano, it's my literally my little brother, virtuous classical player that's been playing since he was little. Someone talking to you and about to serve you something, going to sing you, that's my sister. Inside of this place also want to have a recording studio. So if you coming in there, and the jam is going on, and I'm working on a record, that record don't stop. You're literally dancing or you vibing to whatever we're creating at that time. So that's going to be the Wyclef Jean Carnival, and that's going to be my Margaritaville. We're very excited about that. So come eat our food. Come dance Where our music. Where can we do this? Oh, we're we getting the location now. It's going to be Wyclef Jean Carnival, modern-day Sydney Portier. 
Which instrument are you going to play in my place so I could get it ready? It'd probably have to be saxophone. Saxophone. Okay. Seeing you play sax, you dope. I'm gonna get the sax. Um, I'm gonna have the goat there. No, I'm kidding. But 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 that sounds like a whole lot of fun. We're gonna yeah. be fun. So I'm gonna have a lot of fun for the next ten years. I'll be there. All I'll right, to, fun, I'll have fun, to come fun. Through. Cause I need something to do. Uh, God's come, come, fam. He will. He will need something to do. <laughs> something to do. Come on. <laughs> He'll be done. All right. Well, I think that's a great thing to end on. Do you have any more questions for Wyclef? I didn't bar up. I, th- I thought I was gonna battle Vince. No, that's you're not rhyming. No, okay. You ready? I'm. I'm not. We can. I'm we can listening. always revisit and come back. Yeah, Vince Carter in the house. Yeah, TJ in the house. Okay, here we go, Vince. As it was written, so shall it be done. I was born in Quadebuque. That's behind the Cité Soleil slum. Dog, millionaire is what we become, bro. But this is what happens when you put. Two guys and a girl in the basement and give me an MPC and tell me to settle the score. So basically, Vince, from Adam comes Atom, from Atom comes Eve, from Eve comes the serpent, from the serpent. Now here's the hassle, the voice of God kicking them out because everything they say they done forgotten. Somehow the Garden of Eden Reminds me of Manhattan because this apple been rotten. So, hey, Vince, I know B's and C's, fellas, R.I.P. the Tookie. He got taken by the Terminator. That's the ex-governor of California, Schwarzenegger. He could get D's nuts for executing crip leaders. Now, he on E or out your effing mind, G, it ain't hard to see. It's all a conspiracy, Vince. They caught my man in the H. Hit him with a Rico, A. He hit the freeway like freeway. Translation, just another pawn for the CIA. Because where I'm from, you either dunking like Dr. J or get caught up in a drama with a K and get slayed. Translation, the El Chapo boys, they will bring the drama to him. Now, he like what that mean. They'll carve a M N. Him and old mama screaming, not my boy. His mob deep, but he ain't pee. The havoc cost him the morgue. Now you wait for my cue before you leave the booth or you are going to see this S on your T make you woozy woo from all that blue. Listeners ain't catch that. I told Superman before he take flight, wait for my cue because his weakness is Kryptonite, and you know all that blue that's um Kryptonite, and if you're wondering why I'm walking like a zombie, that's tales of the Kryptonite. Now I'm at the W, they setting up my suite, and he's at the W working on punchlines, making it hard for me to compete. Me, I ran for president. They considered my setups a threat. That's why they was dying for me to do a speech where Madeline's from Harlem, so they could set me up like Malcolm X. Uh, police stopped me. I told them, don't ask why. In the stash box, I keep a Glock, man. They killing niggas, man. I told them I'm a rock star. I keep an axe like ZZ Top's bars, Vince. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. I had to borrow for Exclusive. the Exclusive. <laughs> Exclusive. That was crazy. That's a good way to end it. And he's out. (laughs) For everyone listening, he's 
out with that. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is another episode of Winging It. Annie Kimberg, Vince Carter, and Wycliffe. We'll see you in the house.